You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the double-edged double bill. This week, Tilda Swinton gives an Oakja to Constantine. Thomas and Thomas Mariani come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 or seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Adam Thomas. And I am Thomas Mariani. And uh, welcome to the Double Edge Double Bill, everybody. Uh, we have a special guest with us this particular week. Uh, she is a writer. She also is a content editor over at FilmCred, uh, where I've written a few things and she's a, a lovely cosplayer as well if you see any of her <laughs> socials is miss jessica scott jessica welcome to the show ah thank you so much for having me uh happy to have you on we're uh, very uh, curious to hear your thoughts here as we talk about uh this week uh we, we had this out to the patrons uh patreon.com slash gedb pod uh we'll talk about that a bit further down the line but uh they ended up voting between two actresses it was between uh natalie portman and then the ultimate winner, which was Tilda Swinton. They're an actress we've been wanting to do for quite a while. And uh, Jessica, we put this to you when it was just uh, that competition. No official winner announced. Uh, but are you happy with the result of Miss Swinton? I was secretly rooting for Tilda Swinton. I would have been happy either way, but I was happy with the result. Well, uh, why exactly are you so happy about Miss Swinton? What really um, makes you uh, such a fan of her as an actress? To be honest, I, this is going to sound silly and reductive but she's just very strange she is a strange person she always has she chooses interesting roles and she's never the same person in any movie um obviously that's the goal for most actors but she is such a chameleon because she's such a a compelling and odd person that I'm always fascinated. Even when I am not a fan of the movie that she's in, I'm always a fan of her in the movie. Yeah, I agree. I think that's what's so interesting about Swinton is she is really, you mentioned the chameleon thing, which is a common sort of like praise that you can give to an actor. But with Swinton, it's just like, it's so natural and it is so, I agree, just of her own. Like I was watching just as like a lark because we're doing this, uh, the Pedro Almodovar short film, The Human Voice that came out recently. Mm -hmm. It's a 30 minute short that is just Tilda Swinton doing like a big monologue basically on a set. <laughs> and that sounds like it could just be really dull, but it's incredibly compelling because she is just that talented a performer, I would say. Exactly. Where would mm -hmm. you say you sort of like first glommed onto her? What was the role that made you take notes? Like, oh, she's very interesting. Honestly, and get it, preparing for this, I have not seen a lot of her films. I That's such a strange thing to say. Like, I'm kind of just a a fan of her presence. So whenever I see her in a movie, like I'm, I gravitate towards her movies, but I haven't seen her entire filmography. I had not seen either of these films before. There are several others of hers that I've not seen, but something about her presence as the real Tilda Swinton, if in fact we can ever truly know the real Tilda Swinton, is just so compelling to me. It feels like she 
is always performing and never performing at the same time. So I kind of became aware of her just, you know, out and about being herself doing press. And then every film I've seen her in, she's always, it's kind of this weird tension between the integrity of being the same person in every movie and the mystique of never being the same person from one second to the next in her entire life. So I just, her as a person, I find fascinating. Yeah, that's true. I especially remember uh, recently when the French Dispatch premiered at Cannes and they had mm-hmm. the whole lineup of like everybody, like Timothy <laughs> Chalamet in the t-shirt and Bill Murray right. in the Hawaiian shirt. And she was in that awesome like blue suit, that like teal yes. blue suit that just okay. immediately stuck out. It's just like, oh, you're immediately the only one who knows how to dress basically in this lineup. Yeah, exactly. And it spawned a million memes, but she was always the coolest one in the picture regardless of however your meme format ended up. True, true. But Adam, what about you? Are you a fan and where did that kind of start for you with Swinton? Oh yeah, dude. She's fucking badass, man. Like she's one of my favorite working actresses today. Uh, I can't agree more with everything that's already been said. It's just, there's something about her when she's on screen, you're glued to her. It's, it's even in her sort of muted performances, it's still electric. It's something about the way she carries her eyes or even the way she purses her mouth sometimes. And it's just, she's always doing something when really doing the minimal stuff. And it's just really fascinating to see. Um, you know, that's what makes not only a good actor, but also a good character actor. And she's, she just hits it all in spades. Uh, first time I saw her, man, ah, oh, at least that I can recollect, it's probably either uh, the choice for the bad film tonight, or it was even maybe Narnia. I'm not 100% on that. But I know once I saw her, uh, I was just so fascinated that I, I sort of uh, just watched anything I could get with her in it. It was definitely the Narnia movie for me. Uh, that, that that first one, which to be fair, we might talk about that a bit in the future, put a bit of a pin in that uh, later in the episode. But um, I think with uh, that role in particular as like the White Witch, it was to me like the most captivating thing about that movie was the way that she was able to be like this witch was able to seduce like these kids into this evil realm of things, at least the one kid with Turkish delight. Like how she's able to convince that kid with one of the most overrated candies of all time possible if you've ever had turkish delight you wouldn't sell your family out for that no it's shit <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 give me a fucking chit chat bar or a fucking one of them new reese's with pretzels and a get the fuck out <laughs> you know, my, whole, my whole family could go fuck themselves give me that reese cup yeah turkish delight is garbage no offense to fans of turkish delight who might be listening but find a new stand it's it's our biggest audience like thing it's like all the turkish delight fans they're gonna turn on us <laughs> turkish delight twitter will be at your throat oh the worst twitter the worst twitter of all <laughs> the worst subsect um but yeah so we're covering uh tilda swinton today which we picked our movies in the last episode in case you are unaware adam and i every week uh, end up with uh two good choices two bad choices and we end up getting one particular good and bad movie for uh the resulting episode so our picks ended up being uh the good one was adams uh which ended up being okja and the bad one ended up being constantine which was my choice though we'll get into maybe why uh the the line between good and bad might be a bit more thin with a constantine but first we're going to talk about okja we needed a miracle and then we got one this beautiful and special little creature will be a revolution in the livestock industry. Our super pigs will not only be big and beautiful, they will also leave a minimal footprint on the environment, consume less feed, 
and produce less excretions. And most importantly, they need to taste fucking good. So uh, Okja came out June 28th, 2017, uh, from director Bong himself, Bong Joon-ho, uh, who recently uh, was very acclaimed for uh, Parasite, which won a bunch of Oscars. And this was the movie he did right before, but he's done plenty of like interesting films in Disney of South Korea, and also even some co-productions uh, like this one, or Snowpiercer, the movie he did even before this, uh, but like The Host and all this other stuff. Great director. Um, and Okja was uh, this interesting experiment where he decided to make a movie for Netflix back when that was a bit more of a risk instead of something everybody does and kind of tosses it off and then it's one of 80 movies that comes out on Netflix like any given fucking week. But um, with Okja, I remember it being very sort of controversial because it premiered at Cannes and uh, it ended up being booed at the time. It was like that one and the Meyerowitz story is a Noah Baumbach movie were both, like, very contentious because it's like, oh, it's this great, huge film festival and a streaming giant is trying to interlope in with us here. Um, but, admittingly, uh, this is one of the more weird and ambitious Netflix movies, I would say. It's definitely an example of them courting an acclaimed director to make whatever the fuck they wanted. And Okja, I would argue, is pretty much that. Would you agree, Jessica, having just seen it for the first time? Yeah, absolutely. I... I was kind of surprised that this was a Netflix movie. Yeah, I'm with you that it was a little weirder, a little darker, certainly, than I would have expected. Uh, I obviously wouldn't have booed it, but I will admit to struggling a great deal with the movie because uh, sad animal movies, as I call them, I I'm I struggle with those mightily. So this one I had difficulty with, not because it was a bad movie, just because it was very intense emotionally for me. But... God, the cast is amazing. Like, so many people that I am really, really obsessed with were in this cast. I've never um, seen weird Jake Gyllenhaal before. So seeing uh, flashes of that in this movie, I'm kind of in the cult of Gyllenhaal as well now. Like, I'd, I'd seen a few of his films that I never thought of as being particularly weird. Um, and in this one where he kind of becomes his own version of Swinton, where he's just being as bizarre as he wants to be um i really i get it now so i i appreciated it for that reason and um for seeing tilda in a an, a different light as is always the case with her movies um but yeah i i did this one was hard for me to watch i, I won't lie to you <laughs> well i get that especially it speaks to the title characters uh, adorableness of being a fictional creature but i want to circle back okay. to the like the jake dylan hall tilda swin uh sort of comparison here well, I think the big difference is, like, Tilda Swinton feels like a character from, like, The Dark Crystal or any kind of, mm. like, like really artistic Jim Henson production. Versus Jake Gyllenhaal's mm. a fucking Muppet in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> he is a full-on fucking yeah. Muppet in the best way. That is not... If you know me, that is not an insult by any extent. Um, no, that's a way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Adam, what, how about you? I know you hadn't seen Okja either. What did you end up thinking of uh, this on your first attempted scene though this movie took a dark ass turn man <laughs> like in the, in the very beginning like 
oh, this fucking thing is so cute. Oh, the little girl, oh, and her grandfather. And, oh, I love this. What's Jake Gyllenhaal doing here? Oh, he's being so wacky looking in a fridge with shoes. Like, this is crazy. And then once it sort of did the turn, obviously the logical turn, like, I, I, I knew it was going to go there, but I didn't expect it to have as much weight to it as it did. And, I mean, I was a little fucked up after watching this movie, too, man. Like, I really, really dug it quite a bit. But afterwards, it, like, you know, made me, like, kind of wonder what Jack's, Jack Links is doing with Sasquatch. Like, <laughs> what, what, what is happening here? Like, no, it bummed me out, too, man. Like, I, I really I really enjoyed it. I, the, the acting performances across the board are, are pretty great. And I also was very surprised with actors that popped up in here in various roles. Mm-hmm. It, it was really impressive. Um, you know, Lily Collins, Paul Dano, Stephen Yoon, especially. I'm like, what the fuck? They're in this? I've never seen anything like it. I can honestly say that. I, I've never seen a movie quite like this. And, and for that, I got a little bit of enjoyment as well, because at least it's, you know, not sort of a uh, cliche, stereotypical movie. I don't know. All these Hollywood super pig movies that come out, the pig CU. There's a lot of them. It's ridiculous. Oh, there's a lot I can't of believe them. It. There's a ton of super pig movies. <laughs> there is a lot of them. Um, but. Yeah, I just, I really, really loved it. And uh, Hall, man, holy shit. Like, the second he came on screen, he's doing the high-pitched voice. Like, someone give me some water! (laughs) (laughs) And then then it'd go on, welcome to Mysteries of the Animal Kingdom. I'm like, yeah, this fucking guy. I am so, so far in the cult of Hall now, too. Like, I was already (laughs) halfway in there. But now I'm like... You know, this shit, it started with the John Mulaney sack lunch thing where he's the musical guy. And then this was just like, just booted me right in the ass, right into the cult. Like Mm -hmm. I bought, I went out and bought a pair of black Reeboks and shaved my head. Like it's just, (laughs) it's, it's quite a spellbinding performance by him. And Tilda Swinton is really good in it too, uh, sort of playing the dual roles. Um, I like her in it, but it's not unlike other performances I've seen her give, at least the character type. Like I'd argue there is a lot of Snowpiercer in here, uh, obviously same director. So maybe that's kind of what he wants from her, but it's still, she's, it's still Swinton. So of course it's still a great performance. I mean, I would say that especially like the second role, the the sort of major one she plays, because she plays the two sisters. Yeah. The other one she plays, I would say is pretty distinct from a lot of her other parts because she's playing like the, basically this corporate head who wants to be both like CEO and the big sort of like sponsor mascot of the whole thing. And I like that kind of, like, her tugging at both ends where it's like, oh, I'm trying to be extremely commercial, but also in my heart I'm, like, Tilda Swinton and her most, like, cruel and monstrous, which I love that kind of thing. As opposed to the other part is I agree a lot, like, sort of her Snowpiercer part, but also she does not give a single shit about, like, yeah, I have no empathy or soul. I, I do not care. <laughs> which I think is a great contrast between those two parts. It, it was really cool. Like, the one was kind of bubblegummy, you know, had braces on and stuff. And Even though she was a horrible person, just still wanted to be you know, well-liked by everyone and do better than her father and do better than her sister. And then, yeah, when she comes in as a sister, I mean, she is just fucking heartless and cold-blooded. And, I mean, to a T. The two performances couldn't be any different from each other. I'll give it that for sure. To the point where where they do share the one, like, frame together, and it's so seamlessly, like, separating the two. It just feels like, oh, no, these are two different actresses. (laughs) Like, it feels like there's no real similarity beyond vague look, really, between the two of them. Yeah, it's like a dead ringers moment with Jeremy Irons. Yes. Like, yeah, like completely, like these are completely different people. These are not the same actor. It's just night and day. Yeah. 
Well, and plus also Swinton was like a big producer on this. She was really behind it, I think, having worked with Bong Joon-ho on the um, Snowpiercer movie. She definitely wanted to, I think, really have him embrace his vision, which I give a lot of credit to, especially because she introduces the whole movie. Like, right off the start, she kind of gives you the tonal um, sort of complexity of the movie right off the bat. And I think that's definitely... Um, this is interesting because it's like very much playing on like modern uh, corporate culture and sort of the the image of especially like an eco-friendly company that produces food and all this other stuff but i i think like it her sort of intro is really crucial to having the rest of the film play out as it does because there's this like veneer of a sweet joyful little movie that has a, so much undertones of like dark satire that i agree are kind of hit or miss for me at a certain point but um, she still, I think, does the best job of kind of, like, bringing you into the weird world of Okja, right, from minute one. Yeah, 100%. When you've got these adorable, like, animated, you know, corporate commercial trying to get people to buy into this idea. And like you said, the braces. And she's got, she's aiming for this kind of girlish charm but she ends her speech with yeah and i hope these super pigs are fucking delicious like that is just such a punch to the gut where you're like oh that's what this movie's about right yeah especially as like things go along and right after that we're introduced to the titular super pig because basically if you're unaware right. of this movie uh the the plot is mainly centered around like these super pigs that were initially introduced as like oh we just found one in chile and we decided to like breed a bunch of them and we're having a pig contest where after a 10-year point, we're going to pick one particular super pig to be our sort of mascot for our company. And um, one of them goes to South Korea um, and is named Okja uh, by... Um, sorry if I mispronounce either of these names, but um, there's the grandfather, uh, Hee-bong, played by uh, Byung Hee-bong, and then also uh, An Seo-hyun plays Miha, who is... I, I love the relationship between her and Okja. I think it's so adorable. I think you really, like, get so invested in the two of them um, as the, you see them, like, playing around. Also, you get the sense that Oak is, like, an intelligent creature with, with the way she tries to save um, Mia and all this other stuff. I think it's a great way of introducing this movie in a way that feels like it's drawing on maybe, like, some, like, girl and her pet kind of movies that we've seen before. But still feels at the same time so wholly unique, especially with the effects look so seamless it's been five years since this came out but it still feels like just oak is a real creature right in front of me yeah absolutely which is <laughs> part of why this movie is so like this is a good movie that i hate <laughs> just because it kind of destroyed me so much um but yeah like it's it's so cute. Like, it's diabolically cute in how they relate to each other, the way Okja's eyes move when Mija, you know, whispers in her ear. You know, all those little character moments, like you mentioned, you know, a girl and her dog or a girl and her pet or whatever, films like that that we're used to seeing. You know, all those little character moments as we're getting to know and love both of these characters. And then pretty much everyone else is the villain of the piece because anyone who's not legitimately trying to get these two together again happy on the mountain is you know i'm actively rooting against them <laughs> i hate to be reductive but movies like this kind of bring that out in me a bit i'm afraid well no i mean i, I get that i think that's definitely the most consistent through line throughout the whole movie is these are the only two pure souls possible is mm -hmm. um yeah, Nokja. um which yeah. i think like it leads to some interesting stuff later where i think the first half of this movie is pretty stellar when i think it's much more of like a weird gonzo satiric comedy at play um i think pretty mm -hmm. much everything from the start all the way until like okja's like escape sequence which i love i love all that stuff where like she's trying to escape and the 
ALF is like chasing after him at the same time that like the corporate yes. car is. I think that that's such a stellar sequence. And I think after that, the movie kind of starts falling apart for me. It still is interesting. And I still particularly believe that friendship between those two. But I love this the first time I saw it and revisiting it. I do kind of feel like once the ALF take a larger role in the movie, it feels like it's a bit more satirically all over the place. Would you maybe agree with that, Adam? That's what I was kind of, you know, kind of saying earlier. It does take such a real big turn, man. You got to figure once the, um, after the initial sort of ALF chase scene, which is really well done and it's really cool and it's really, you know, exciting and, and funny too. Um, but then once it sort of gets into what ultimately uh they're doing to okja and sort of the bit with paul dano and steven yoon and everything it's just like it's such a tonal shift where i almost got a little bit of whiplash from it a little bit of tonal whiplash i wouldn't say it's bad or 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 anything like that i still think it's very solid um but it just feels almost like two different movies and i i had you know internal questions as the movie started just because as we said you know it sets up so many different tones and so many things that it clearly wants to do i was curious to see how cohesive or coherent it would be and you know a movie doesn't have to be totally cohesive necessarily to be good or to be entertaining um but yeah it just it feels like there's a lot that it wants to talk about and a lot that it wants to accomplish that it didn't quite hit everything the way I would like, if that makes sense. No, yeah, there's definitely, like, a no lack of ambition here. I, I think oh, that's, yeah. that's, oh, yeah. that's the thing with even any of Bong Joon-ho's movies, is I think all of them have a kind of, like, midway tonal shift that really works. Like, the host, even, I would say, goes from, like, full-on monster movie to, like, mm-hmm. a very, like, almost, like, traumatic horror event movie that, like, sort of happens at the midway point of it. I think that's what's fascinating about that guy is that he's able to do these kind of things. Or even Parasite has that, I would argue. Like, initially, it's kind of, like, a bit more, like, satiric comedy, and then it goes full-on into, like, a Coen Brothers-style thriller after a certain point once they're in the house and everything. I think it's just that with an Okja, it almost feels like there's a bit of, like, a I'm lost in translation kind of thing, where, especially with, like, his co-writer on this is John Ronson, who is, like, a satiric writer that wrote stuff like The Men Who Stare at Goats, some other, like, kind of, like, wilder, crazy kind of stuff that... I think their styles clash at points. I think particularly, like I mentioned, the ALF stuff, it it feels like at that point when it's just this, like we mentioned, like, oh, everybody, like, not just the corporate side of things, but even the scroungy rebels are also kind of, like, incompetent and don't have any clear alliances whatsoever. It just kind of feels like it's this weird, cynical turn for, like, the second hour of the movie that doesn't quite know which, like, direction we're going to go. And it's still, like, aside from the consistent thing of, like, Okja and Mia are purely real and have no kind of, like, qualms about, like, what they want to do, everyone else is just like, oh, it's kind of fucking all bad. It doesn't matter. You got your pig. <laughs> you get to go back home. <laughs> like, that's it. It's just this weird kind of, like, nihilistic shrug that I both respect and I'm still just kind of like, oh, that that's what this was about. <laughs> and I'm glad that you, obviously, you would mention the host, but I... If I did not know who had directed this film, I still would have said this this has to be from the guy who made the host because I feel like there's so many, you know, narratively speaking, thematically speaking, there's so many similarities there. I with, you know, this tragedy surrounding this, you know, girl on the run or girl who's lost or been captured and how it like you said it goes from kind of a standard monster movie to being just 
utterly devastating, like this depressing, heartbreaking movie. And I, I feel like that's kind of the movie that Bong Joon-ho wanted to make. And as you say, maybe at odds, a, a tad with his co-writer in that. Um, but yeah, I this was, it was like the host super pig you know, the, the sequel um, to me in a lot of ways, at least at first. See, now I haven't seen the host and fuck, man, it's been a long, long, long time, but I can absolutely just hearing you describe it like that. See that like a hundred percent. I don't think I would ever watch this again. Like I did like it quite a bit, but it's just, it's brutal, man. And it, it's, and like you said, I, I love that, you know, Miha and Okja get to go back and, you know, they only got the little piglet with them, which is incredibly cute. Like, fuck out of here with that thing. That is amazing. <laughs> but then the whole time, I'm like, oh, cool. Y'all, the piglet. Oh, how'd they get the piglet? Oh, yeah, wait. <laughs> That's why they have yeah. the piglet. Yeah. Right, right. Oh, oh fuck. And it's just, uh, and the fact that, I mean, and the thing is, I understand they want to show sort of the brutality of the, of what happens to livestock and slaughterhouses and things like that. Like I, I totally understand the point of it and, and what they're going to do, but I know those things happen. I understand it's important to get that stuff out, but they really went to levels with this that I was not expecting them to go. Um, especially, well, a, you know, the mating scene, awful. Yeah. Awful. You know, it's yeah. a rape scene. Then the little girl in the slaughterhouse and seeing all the the cadavers and then the different parts and them getting packaged and everything. And then you get the bolt gun scene. And I'm like, oh, my God. okay, fuck. This is relentless. And again, I'm sure that's the point. I completely understand that. But it, it just comes as maybe a little bit harder to take, only in the fact that, A, you're kind of seeing it through a child's eyes. And B, you spent the first sort of 30 or 40 minutes just watching this kid and this pig play and have a relationship and all that stuff. So then when you get to that part, it's just so like jarring and brutal that it's just, it affected me not in the way that I would have hoped this movie would have still, I'm not saying it's a bad thing to be disturbed by a movie. Sometimes that's the point of the movie. And I, I do think that was the point of this, but it turned me off to the point where I'm, I, I, I couldn't watch this again. And I would be very, very, sort of selective of who I would recommend this to a hundred percent. Like you actually told me at a certain point, like when you were about to watch it, like, Oh, Hey, I have my daughter. Is this kid friendly? I'm like the first half kind of is. Yeah, <laughs> that would have been a mistake. Like if you stopped at the ALF things, like, and then they went home and they're happy. That's it. That's the whole movie. honey. It's only an hour long. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, yeah, that would have been really bad. I, I'm really glad I, uh, I asked you first. Yeah. <laughs> Cause, uh, that would have been our Friday night, and I would have had a really rough Saturday. <laughs> you would have been paying therapy bills for the next, I don't know how old your daughter is, but however long. Five. <laughs> It'd be like if the chef succeeded in The Little Mermaid. It right. comes Sebastian. <laughs> oh, man, that's the way it goes, honey. Like, oh boy. Well, and I, uh, I, I think what the the bigger problem for me is why I think, say, like a parasite or the host or even Snowpiercer, his other like English language for the most part film. I think where those movies kind of succeed, where this one kind of stumbles a bit, is the turn doesn't feel like it's as naturally transitioned as it does in any of those other movies. It feels a bit more imbalanced from the first half to the second half. With particularly, I think the moment where Stephen Yoon intentionally mistranslates is really the moment where it kind of like starts falling 
on its face a bit in terms of satiric stuff. And it becomes a lot more of just like, oh, everyone's a bumbling idiot except for our main characters, which, like I said, in a way, it's really, I agree, I, agree, I respect the, the ballsiness of getting to that ending where it's like, well, Okja can be saved, but, like, not everybody really can. And there's no real point to any of this. And any sort of, like, main figures, the only thing they care about is money. So if you happen to have a golden calf idol, in this case a pig, <laughs> that you can sell them, uh, there's not really any kind of hope. It's something where, like, I wouldn't mind that sort of ending necessarily as much if maybe the rest of the movie felt like it transitioned as well to that ultimate final point. We keep saying, and I know that's the point, it's so hard not to disconnect from this movie as you're watching it just for your own self-preservation, even if you've never eaten meat in your life, you know, I would imagine it's hard to stay in that space with the movie. At least it was for me. I um, had to intentionally like distract myself from it to be able to keep going with it. But yeah, it's, I, I think it's totally valid to say this is a good movie, but this is not a movie for me, or this is not a movie I will ever watch again in my life, or, you know, this is not a movie I will recommend to everyone because I really don't think that everyone should watch this movie, just, you know, irrespective of its quality. But yeah, I, I would agree with you that in, like, The Host, I have not seen Snowpiercer, so I can't speak to, you know, thematic similarities or, you know... Um, oh gotcha fair enough um but yeah like it it felt organic in the host it was still you know my experience so far with bong joon ho is movies that end up making me want to lie on the floor for a couple of weeks (laughs) um and you know this is obviously no exception but yeah i ultimately i come down to this is a good movie that i will likely never recommend to anyone and will never watch again I, I feel like that was a rambling answer, but I, I think it's good, but don't watch it is a valid reaction to this movie. <laughs> and then you put it on Netflix right there next to the Okja page. It's just Jessica Scott. Uh, I, I liked it, but it's kind of awful to watch it. Yeah, do not watch this movie, Jessica Scott. Don't credit. <laughs> quote him. Uh, yeah, um, That's how I'm going to get Rotten Tomatoes certified. <laughs> that, yes, for sure. I, I don't know. I think it also has to do with like some of these characters I don't think transition quite as well to that second half like especially like the scene you're talking about adam the, the horrible like mating sequence is like we're led into that with like a drunk version of jake gyllenhaal's character who earlier like it's a great satiric idea of like oh this guy is so over the top and silly when he's off camera and then on camera he tries to put on a different persona entirely that gets him all kinds of followers and then when he's that same guy but in that particular scenario it it just feels i don't know it, it feels kind of like it's just like so I, this is a horrible, sort of awful thing that happens, and I'm 100% get why it's here story-wise and all this other stuff like we mentioned, but then you have, like, his character there, and I think it just kind of deflates a lot of the interesting tension that you even have for that sequence. It's just like, he's like, Alfredo! Which is, like, literally <laughs> what he says. It's, it, I don't know. I, I think, like, but earlier on, like, that that really works, or, like I said, Till Swinton's different roles, I think, kind of, or we even haven't mentioned, I really love Giancarlo Esposito as the guy basically mm-hmm. in the shadows. is so stunning. Even I think one of the funnier bits in that later half of the movie is the way that he's daintily holding, like, the weird beef jerky thing that they have at the end. He's just daintily unwrapping it like it's almost a banana. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, nah, Again, I'm not eating that fucking shit. There's no way. To get to the back to the Jake Gyllenhaal and the thing, you know, yeah, he's drunk and he's having sort of a job crisis where, you know, he's not valuable anymore to their corporation and sort of their 
hoping that Mia becomes the new face of the company and all that stuff and blah, blah, blah. Um, and he does, you know, Alfonso and all that shit happens. But then he's like, I love animals. And he starts cutting pieces off Okja. I, what the fuck? Like, it was, again, just such, so tonally shocking to me because this guy's sort of been the joke character the whole movie. And then they get him, have him go very dark for like two minutes. And then the next time you see him, he's up there drunk and being silly and someone throws a bottle at his head and all this stuff. It feels like it got so concerned with, with getting its message across that it sort of lost the characters that it built to sort of start this, the story. It, it, everybody became a completely different character for the most part in the second act, other than really Okja and, and Miha. I mean, even Tilda Swinton's two different characters and Steven Yoon is part of the group, but yet he's there at the end. And then uh, Paul, Paul Dan almost gets beat to death, but they save his life. It's just, if they lost their own characters in, like I said, in the sort of attempt to really get a message across about, processed meats right and even with like the the alf characters i also think like they feel so totally confused where it's just like oh hey these guys ostensibly believe in like 90 percent of what you know the mia and okja would want which is to like not have any of these things happen to these animals but they're also also incompetent it's just kind of saying like well organizations don't work so it's like so what what the fuck am i to do with that dude <laughs> so you want us to not eat this processed meat but also fuck trying to organize not eat processed meat like where, where are we where are we going with this it just i i don't know really i think that's why the alf stuff really is what kind of makes this satirically fall apart in the second half despite i agree i think there's still a lot of, like interesting like directorial flourishes and i think it does a pretty good job of at least selling like what it wants to do with the two main characters but a lot of the peripheral stuff just feels like it's kind of like tenuous and thin after a certain point of as thin as um you know like jake Hall's mustache hairs after a certain point i don't know where exactly <laughs> it's going I, I will say though uh out of the all the alf stuff uh paul dano was fucking really good in this movie though yeah i, I mean of course he was but yeah I, i'm obsessed with paul dano so i i, I was continually shocked at everyone who showed up in this movie yeah, none of the performers really, I think that's what really sells you even into that second part of the movie. It's still, like we mentioned, like Tilda Swinton's playing both those roles and is still, like, really committing to it. Jake Gyllenhaal, even, like, when he gets on that fucking stage and he's just doing whatever he's doing, <laughs> getting up there and having, like, floppy limbs and stuff. Even, like, I agree, Steven Yoon, <laughs> I think, is trying to play that part as interestingly complex as he can. I think Lily Collins is also pretty solid. I think that's the stuff that I think makes this work more than not for me. It's really the commitment of the performers and even just the world that uh, Junho is designing around here, I think is tremendous. Like the look of the giant inflated uh, like balloon that's going on or early when we had like the beautiful luscious look at like the, basically the South Korean forest they're in the middle of in the mountains, all this other stuff. And even like the first shot when Jake Hall comes up and it's basically like a one shot of him like getting the water and all this other stuff. And then we see Okja and he sees it for the first time is like such a stellar example of like his directorial flourishes. So I think there's enough like bits and pieces to get you through to the end. But at the same time, I agree that it um, it doesn't quite work as a cohesive whole. And I think that will be my final thoughts because we have a whole another movie to talk about and we should get into that. But uh, Jessica, your final thoughts on Okja. Uh, honestly, I agree with that. I, I don't want to... There are a lot of elements that I enjoyed, but overall, frankly, it's it was just too difficult for me. 
<laughs> I feel so foolish saying that, but it was just such a hard watch. No, I mean, look, like we said, that second, like, once they get particularly to the slaughterhouse, it's very brutal. Like, I don't shoe my nose in anybody that has a hard time with, especially the finale of this movie. But Adam, what about you and your final thoughts? No, Joe. I would be, like, kind of worried about people who don't have a problem with this finale. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're kind of like, oh, fuck yeah. You know, like, nah, no, no. <laughs> like... Yeah, I, again, I, I think it's a, it's a solid movie, man. I, I, it's well acted. It's beautiful looking. The effects hold up. Everything. It's just it. There's such a tonal whiplash for me in it. And again, doesn't make the second half bad. It's just a completely sort of different movie. I don't think I'll ever watch this again. I'd be hard pressed to find someone to recommend it to. And uh, like, just you know, fuck hot dogs. Like, uh, you know, just stop eating hot dogs, people. Unless they're kosher. Yes, that's the ultimate lesson: there eat kosher hot dogs. <laughs> For mm-hmm. sure on that. Uh, but uh, before we get into our next feature, here's a promo for an ESO so you can queue up right after ours. Do you know how fast you were going? Uh, sorry, officer. Uh, one episode every two weeks? Two weeks! Did you also know you're carrying a dangerously heavy load? Yes, sir, we do. We've got interviews, fight nights, film discussions, Desert Island DVDs, and lots more. I think we've got to take you down to the station. You do not have to write anything, but it may harm the Cosmic Pizza podcast if you do not mention, when questioned, something you later wanted in the promo or feedbacks. Anything you do say may be used in said feedback. Cosmic Pizza podcast is not about the cosmos, all about pizza. All right, now let's talk about Constantine. Mr. Constantine, I'd like to ask you a few questions. I know the circles you travel in, the occult, exorcisms. I thought that you could at least point me in the right direction. Yeah, okay, sure. What if I told you that God and the devil made a wager for the souls of all mankind? No direct contact with humans, that would be the rule. Just influence, see who would win. Demons stay in hell, angels in heaven. They call it the balance. I need to see what you see. You do this, there's no turning back. You see them, they see you, understand? All right, so Constantine came out February 18th, 2005, which is based on the DC Comics character of John Constantine, though uh, I think we should firmly just establish right off the bat, Adam, as I know, definitely a very comic book literate person, this is very different from Constantine besides name and vague premise. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Jessica, you're a fan as well of the comics. I am a huge fan of the comics. This is, uh, we'll get into it, but this is not really Constantine, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Not really. Yeah. Right, but um, this is a film that uh, it stars Keanu Reeves, who is very much the opposite version of who I believe. Based on I don't know much about the comics. Most of what I know is from the brief, uh, short-lived NBC show that starred Matt Ryan, which everyone said, "Man, Matt Ryan's really good in the show," and that's about all they really said. <laughs> yeah, he was closer to uh, for sure to the comic. I mean, let's just put it this way, dude. Uh, the the original concept for the character in both look and almost personality was based on Sting. Mm-hmm. So, that's not Keanu Reeves. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right, and God help us if he had tried to do another British accent post uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, God, could you fucking imagine? <laughs> oh, oh. 
Oh, I'm so. Oh, thank God they didn't try. Oh. <laughs> right. True. True. Um, but yeah. So this is. It's very different from the original source material. Uh, but it's a movie that I remember at the time was criticized a lot for that, and was kind of like very minimally successful and just kind of faded away until it got a weird cult following that I remember um, particularly once the DVDs came out and everything. Um, Jessica, this being the first time you've seen it and being a fan of the source material, do you think any of that is maybe warranted or do you feel like it should have been uh, left in the dust? Well, unless a movie is, you know, like morally abhorrent, like actively harmful, I, I'm not really going to advocate for it being left in the dust. If there are people who love this movie, more power to you. I'm glad you love this movie. Um, you know, there were parts of it that I really enjoyed too. To me, I, I had two main problems with it. The first, you know, sometimes being a comic book purist, I was like, this is not Constantine. You know, Keanu Reeves was horribly miscast. I love Keanu Reeves, but he does not have the irreverence and the kind of, you know, devil may care, fuck you attitude that you need for Constantine. I do think Matt Ryan is really good in the role, um, but he just doesn't have the swagger required for this character. Um, so, you know, you've got that weird miscast disconnect right at the right from the start. But also, honestly, except for a few bright spots, I was I found this movie pretty boring. It just feels like attractive people wandering around on a green screen soundstage, not really connecting with each other or with the material. For a movie about, you know, preventing the end of the world, it never felt like the stakes were very big. And I, that's just such a strange disconnect to me. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to criticize people who love this movie. I, I, I'm sure, you know, if I'm looking for something to do on a Saturday afternoon, I might watch it again just because there are some parts that I really liked. I'll certainly watch it again before I watch Oak Jug again. <laughs> but um, I had heard over and over again that people, a lot of people hated this movie. A lot of people thought that this movie was terrible. And I... I can see why a lot of people don't like it because it's 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 not the comics Constantine and it's not in my opinion the most entertaining or well done movie even though there are a lot of good people involved in it yeah I, I hadn't seen this either until um, I ended up picking it here for the show and I think I do like a lot of elements of it but I agree the biggest problem even just as non-comics person is one, Keanu just feels, I, I don't think, works even for the Constantine that's written in this particular movie. Where mm -hmm. it, it feels like they're kind of trying to slot him into an action star role because this is post-Matrix. And I think the worst parts of the movie are when they try and go sort of Matrixy action, but it's angels and demons kind of thing. As opposed right. to when it wants to be like a horror fantasy movie, I think it's at its best. There's a lot of like really fun moments of even when people are like wandering around in hell. I like the idea that hell is sort of this version of Earth that we see is just like covered in like fire and brimstone, and even the demons don't look that bad for 2005 CGI. I would say mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but it I think it falls under the weight of having to be like, oh, we're a comic book movie and we're have Keanu Reeves post the Matrix movies. This is gonna be a badass action. Or it's just like, guys, can we just have like, I don't know, the Tilda Swinton angel or Pierce Stormier devil like talk? Because that's the most interesting Thank stuff you. in the fucking movie <laughs> for sure. But Adam, I know you were definitely um, both a fan of the comics, but also even a bit of a defender of the movie. Am I right? Well, I'm a defender in the movie in the way that everyone but the main two leads, uh, Keanu Reeves and uh, 
even Rachel Weisz, who I really like, she just falls flat in this movie, and they have zero sort of chemistry together, Hunter, mm-hmm. I mean, at all. And then, you know, of course, as I forgot until rewatching fucking Shia LaBeouf, but to me, everything else in it works. I, I, I love Peter Stormare. I love Tilda Swinton. I like Jamin Hansu. I even like Gavin Rossdale in it. it it's, it, you know, it, it, there's a lot of cool shit that they could have really done with this anti-Catholicism sort of story to where this guy who's saved all these people and everything, he's still going to go to hell because of, you know, ultimately he tried to kill himself and or he did kill himself and blah 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 there's a lot of cool shit in this movie like there's a really really good story here even for a constantine story it is unfortunately thomas i, I think you said it really well uh, a post matrix keanu reeves to where you can completely tell i even him being in the black suit instead mm-hmm. of you know, the gray trench coat and the red tie mm-hmm. and that, like he's supposed to be was a choice. There's no question about it. And the, the bigger action bits do get a little fucking silly. And also a lot of them are really poorly shot and lit. Like the whole scene in the hospital, the water gets blessed and everything. You could barely see what's going on. You just see him flipping around that ridiculous looking shotgun and, and shooting these things. It feels like a scene from a lesser blade movie in particular. That moment. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. 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 That's a good point. Yeah. But there's a lot of interesting stuff in this fucking movie. Like when he goes into John and Hansu's club and just what the fuck is going on in that club? Like, what are they doing? Like, are they eating somebody? Like it's just, it's crazy cool flashes of really dark shit. It's just, unfortunately they, they sort of get you there, but never sort of pull the cord. Uh, if this movie would have really went for it and had a lot more dark and disturbing imagery, I think it would have worked a lot better if it leaned on sort of the horror uh, aspect of the, even the source material rather than the, it's a comic book movie, so it's fun and crazy action. Because uh, it just comes across kind of flat. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I think also to reference the Rachel Feist thing, I agree that it's an issue of uh, like that character has nothing. I think that's the big problem. It's like it's kind of like the one of the big sins that's uh, happened since Rachel Feist started doing like big blockbuster movies. Like it happened in The Mummy Returns, happened as as recently as Black Widow. Give Rachel Weisz shit to do. She's one of our <laughs> great actresses, and she's just kind of like, oh uh, yeah, I'm a cop. And I'm going to get, there's that one scene where like uh, he faces off against Balthazar and she's like, oh man, I can't believe he would put me in this car. And it's like, oh man, she's going to do something. No, she just comes in just like, oh, it's done. Okay. Gotta go back in the elevator. (laughs) And she gets fucking kidnapped after that point. It's such a like dumb cock tease of a thing. Just like, oh man, Rachel Weiss just gets kidnapped. (laughs) (laughs) We're like, her role is so thankless in this movie. It is so much of just like a damsel getting kidnapped kind of thing. Even when she plays two parts in this movie, the other one is just like, oh, I just, I die so I could get the plot moving. Yeah, and she's supposed to be this, you know, super cop, but she keeps forgetting that she's psychic. Like every time the, the plot requires, you know, oh, and they have to have a powerful psychic to bring the son of Satan back. She's like, but where will they find a psychic? Like 20 times she asks this, you know, I, they want us to believe she's, you know, really tough and strong and smart, but at the same time, just the dumbest person on the planet and completely incapable of doing anything. It's bizarre. It feels very, like, this whole movie with this action stuff and Rachel Feist, even like we're talking about, it feels so studio note heavy. It feels like there was mm-hmm. a really cool vision of this movie that has, like, sort of 
horror fancy, even a bit of noir stuff with, I agree, the Papa Midnight Club. There's a lot of cool, like, almost noir connotations to it. You could almost do, like, a Casablanca, but between heaven and hell is what it's kind of trying to be. And then see you guys just like, but it's a comic book movie. We need, like, people blow up. <laughs> and we need them to have, like, a cross gun. <laughs> there needs to be, you know, a Looney Tunes hole in 25,000 walls, and Keanu just runs through them for an hour. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 100% true. <laughs> Give him a cute little buddy who drives a cab and make him really want to be like him. And like, okay. It, the thing is, it, it's just, th- like I said, there's a lot of cool shit in this movie. I, I This is one of those, if it's on, I'll watch it. And I do understand why it's got its fans. There is a really cool mythology that's sort of peeking out from behind the curtain here, the mm-hmm. whole movie. And I think a lot of people can sort of like build their own version of the movie in their head as they watch it. Like, oh man, if they would have done this, it would have been so cool and stuff like that. Like, I get it. And, you know, because I do that with some lesser movies, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I think them put pigeonholing themselves into the comic book universe um, really hurt the movie. Yeah, I do want to say, like, some of the things I really like, I think it's especially disappointing when I think the movie opens so strong. I love the opening set piece of this movie where he goes up to the apartment and the one young lady is, like, possessed, I think is actually a stellar way of introducing a lot of, like, the mythology stuff and getting to, like, oh, hey, you gotta, like, put the mirror over but don't look into their face and then the one guy, like, ages rapidly (laughs) in front of him. So, like, I think that's really stellar stuff. And I think if it just kind of stuck to doing that kind of, like, um, teasing of the mythology in small, intimate ways as opposed to, I agree, Jessica said earlier, the stakes are supposed to be so big of, like, the Antichrist is going to like come out of Rachel Vice basically is what they're trying to do it's just like oh my god such big implications and it's like we couldn't really afford the bigger implications so it's just gonna be in like a hospital <laughs> I mean it's totally true I'm just cracking up that we couldn't afford the bigger implications but it's it's so accurate though and I'm with you I'm I'm really obsessed with that opening with you know the demon getting stuck in the mirror and then the, like Keanu having to lean back almost parallel to the floor to get it to go through. That's that's like a thrilling action sequence that still works because it's very horror centric. You know, that's kind of the vibe they should have gone for the whole time. Um, you know, I, before I had seen this movie, all I knew about it was that most people weren't fans of it, but pretty much everyone agreed that Peter Stormare was an amazing version of the devil. And I, I'm, I'm on that bandwagon. I'm officially obsessed with his depiction of the devil from you know the the costume with the the tar on his feet and the white suit and the like kind of predatory uh, semi-sexual way he kind of snarls and bites at uh, at Constantine everything about that depiction I think is a fantastic cinematic depiction of Satan not one that's very common so you know there's a lot going for this movie but it doesn't come together well partly because of you know, the woodenness between the leads, miscasting of Keanu, and just, yeah, I just, I never felt like there were any real stakes involved. I absolutely love Peter Stormare in this, too. Um, I love even the no eyebrows, the giggling, and all that stuff. But I'd argue we have seen this version of the devil quite a bit, where someone is so over the top and crazy, and, oh, I'm the devil, you know, boogity boogity, <laughs> I'm wild now. But I'd argue it, this is probably my favorite version of that type of Satan because yeah, he does the giggles and he does the growls and stuff like that. 
but at no time does he come off like a clown. He's still incredibly menacing. And there's even a point when he's talking to John and stuff that you're like, he's not that bad of a devil. <laughs> he's all right. He's just doing his job. Um, you know, but no, he's he's really fucking good in it. And I do love the tar on the feet and all that stuff. It's just, and even his introduction with the glass and all, it, it's just so fucking cool. Like, I, I really, really do dig it too. I don't ever feel like he is sort of even going for clown as much as he's this like demonic entity that's stuck inside like Stormare body just for the sake of like our human eyes, which I think is what's so fascinating. He's like put on the Stormare suit basically. And he's just walking around just like, this is how I can barely like, he's, it looks like he's trying to crawl out of his own skin the whole time, which I think is what's so interesting yeah. and unsettling about him. It's right on the cusp where it could go silly, but it's always menacing. Like it's like, it's like Pennywise in, in chapter one, one where there's this almost playfulness to it, but it's never not, like, terrifying. Yeah, I think it's because, like, that's the stuff where it almost feels like, man, this should have been more like a good omens. Like, with that kind of, like, attention to the idea of, like, oh, this has all been going on this whole time, and there's sort of this weird, almost kind of bureaucracy to, like, the heaven and hell fight that's going on, but at the same time, there's also this chaos. I think there's points where, like, hints at that that's so interesting. I think especially with, we should mention, uh, Miss Swinton the uh, person of the hour playing Gabriel, who I did not know was only in two scenes of this movie and is a bummer because those are two of the best scenes of the movie when she shows up, which is like initially her introduction being in front of that fireplace and the fact that she almost plays like the sort of no specific gender version of Gabriel and is wearing a suit and is just going full like fucking Bowie with the way she just shows up this androgynous look that at the same time is so captivating to see and her back and forth with Keanu at that point and then later on when she shows up with the wings pure on and it's just like stepping on Keanu it's just like yeah this is great why wasn't this especially when like she ends up being like the villain of the movie I guess yeah no I absolutely agree I love her introduction scene I love the sort of glow they constantly have in her eyes I love the way she talks to him in her introduction scene where she's being really compassionate but also like go fuck yourself basically and then yeah the costuming decisions that they made for her in this movie are, are fucking incredible like you said the suit but then at the end when she's got the wings and she's in sort of the white tank with the white pants but then both of her arms from almost elbow to wrist are hospital bands hospital bracelets yes like it's so fucking cool and bizarre we needed more of her we needed more of gabriel and i'm uh, and i completely agree on the costuming part of me thinks that you know that second scene with all the hospital bracelets she just showed up off the street wearing that that's her everyday garb and she was like oh this might work for this scene but it's it's so smart and it's so weird. collection yeah <laughs> yes. exactly. it's you know from the house of swinton i mean that's just how she shows up to work um that's the perfect way to portray an angel because she always has kind of this ethereal glow to her anyway but you know the androgyny and the kind of sweetness with some sinister you know condescension underneath is just perfect for that role and you know gabriel's so fascinating she makes gabriel fascinating the way they you know set up i, I love the idea of angels hating us just as much as demons do and I like that they kind of lean into that a little bit, um, that, you know, angels resent humans and really don't care if humans live or die any more than, you know, demons do. And I, I'm fascinated with 
you know, the balance and the push and pull there. And, you know, they didn't seem as interested in that as I think a lot of audience members would be. Certainly I am. Um, but yeah, I, she's fantastic in this movie. She looks amazing. Yeah, she just, she brings a lot to that character and makes that character interesting in a way that you're like, the whole movie should just be about Gabriel and how many more amazing outfits Gabriel's going to bring out and how many more weird motives we're going to tease out from Gabriel because there are so many plots in that mind, I'm sure, because of, you know, the angel's kind of apathy or antipathy towards humanity. Yeah, I think even, like, with Swinton, my favorite thing about her is that, like, at the end, after all this has happened and her wings have been destroyed and Gabriel becomes mortal, like, Keanu just does, like, that brief, like, hit after he's just, like, Gabriel's like, you know what, hey, why don't you just shoot me, like, go ahead and end my life, and then John hits him and then leaves, and then Gabriel's just like, John, you're doing so well! <laughs> you didn't actually take the, the final point. It's such a great example of, like, what Jessica was talking about in terms of, like, this weird push and pull of, like, Gabriel at one point, like, mere moments ago was trying to destroy all of humanity and then just, like, easily takes this other point. Just be like, oh, no, I'm totally on your side, John, now that I have no powers whatsoever. There's this, like, fun push and pull that, like, it's there's so much clever stuff. That's what makes this movie not necessarily a bad movie, but, like, a frustrating one. It's a really frustrating one to watch because you see so much of, like, the interesting ideas that are trying to creep out of a very clearly studio-mandated, like, big actioner. Which I think comes a lot from the director is Francis Lawrence, we haven't even talked about, who I think is the king of some of that kind of stuff. With, like, he also did the Hunger Games sequels and um, I Am Legend, which I think is the exact same thing of this, where it's just like, there's a lot of cool ideas speaking out, but very clearly studio-mandated bullshit just keeps getting in the way. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I kept meaning to look up this director because I didn't recognize him by name. But as soon as I heard I Am Legend, I was like, oh, God, of course. Because I talk about, you know, again, amazing source material and then a movie that just doesn't get it right at all. No, yeah. I I think there's, there's also like a lot of the same problems with like the way he sort of creates big CGI hordes, I think. In, in both mm-hmm. these movies um, that feel like at certain points kind of work and at other points don't, or even like some of the practical effects I think are pretty great. The practical like makeup in particular, like when uh, Balthazar is like melting, I love the look mm-hmm. of like his half demon face. It's, it's definitely just a problem of like, it, if there was a more cohesive vision, do you think we could get maybe a more accurate Constantine movie that kind of draws upon these things we're talking about from like a modern DC? Or do you think that's less even likely now with the weird push and pull that Warner Brothers has done with some great and some very terrible DC movies as of recent. For the most part, I trust DC's television universe more than its uh, feature film universe. But even then, the TV series are sometimes hit or miss. But I, I trust television much more than what they're doing in the feature films these days so i think if they wanted to try constantine again i think a series would be the way to go i would not object to matt ryan um being constantine again because i think he gets he's definitely more constantine than keanu reeves i'll say that um but yeah i think tv is the way to go because i think um i'm not caught up on doom patrol but they are nailing doom patrol on television but they've got properties on so many different channels like so many different weird rights issues that some people are getting it right and some people are in my very humble opinion not getting it right at all so but i would i would go tv with pretty much every dc property just because i prefer 
what they're doing on television to what they're doing in films. I definitely agree. DC um, sort of in shiny moments are its television work. I mean, all the way back to, you know, Arrow to everything, mm-hmm. pretty much everything post Arrow yeah. uh, has been for the most part a hit. There's been a couple misses, but for the most part, it, it's at least more solid than some of their film outings. Um, with Constantine, it, it really depends, man. It, it, if it's going to be TV, it's got to be HBO Max type TV where they don't mm-hmm. care about going dark and violent and cursing and things like that. Um, neutered Constantine doesn't really work. Now, I know there's talks of them doing the Justice League Dark movie where Constantine will be a member of it or blah, 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 blah. I don't see sort of Warner Brothers making a faithful film adaptation. I, I honestly do agree. I think um, sort of episodic television would be the way to go. Even if you want to do it where, you know, there is an over sort of arcing storyline, but they could do almost like a creature of the week feature, you know, demon you know whatever you want to call it 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 could be done you it it could be really successful i mean swamp thing didn't catch on but i'd argue if you watch swamp thing it's dark it's violent it's disturbing Mm -hmm. it it should have worked and the thing is if you're going to do constantine you got to lay into it like they did with swamp thing because if not then why make it it'd be like it'd be like making a punisher movie pg or PG-13. That's why it'll never happen. You can't do it successfully. Inherently, the source material is way too dark for the average audience, I'd argue. Yeah, 100%. No, I can't wait for Disney Plus's Punisher TV show. It'll be great. It'll be great. Um, but but no, I think even with like the the constant, just based on like my limited experience, like this moving even that TV show, the reason I kind of jumped off that TV show after a couple episodes was like that monster of the week element. I think got so thin really fast because they were trying to make it almost like a supernatural, like literally supernatural the CW show like ripoff in a way that just felt like this is like getting a lot more monotonous. I think maybe if we were to do a film for HBO Max, which I know there's been like a lot of like other properties that they're just putting to HBO Max, I think it would have a, find a solid home there. Even like an animated show, I think would even work if you were to maybe do it that way. And like, so you can get the full amount of scale without having to spend like a hundred and fifty million dollars or whatever the fuck. I think that might even be a better route for it than quite what they're, they're do, they did in like the, that TV show or even with this film, I think has like a lot of those similar problems but why don't we go ahead and go into final thoughts uh here uh jessica your final thoughts on the constantine film um a lot of potential some very strange decisions that left this big not a particularly satisfying movie for me um but a lot of good elements and i can see why it's got its fans but i also see why it has its detractors (laughs) but swinton is of course great in it adam there's worse out there hundred uh, percent. There's even worse action movies of this era. There's worse movies that deal with this sort of subject matter. It is a heavily flawed movie, but it is anchored by some really, really great performances. Um, like I, I named most of them already, but yeah, Tilda Swinton is fucking fantastic in it. Peter Stormare, John Hansu. There's a lot of great work in this movie. Um, it's just sort of messy, but you know, if, if you're either a comic book movie completionist or you like 
you know, horror action movies, then you could go worse than this for sure. Yeah, I think that's just the frustration of it is there's a lot of like fun mythology elements and some really good sort of side character performances from we mentioned like a Stormare and Swinton, but I think also like we kind of glossed over Jamon Hans, who I think is very fun as Papa Midnight. And um, even like I plays Balthazar, I think is also interesting. There's a lot of fun stuff in here that just is anchored by a giant weight that is like our three technically our first three like uh credited actors who i don't think are like phoning it in but also at the same time aren't quite given the right sort of thing like we mentioned keanu is miscast entirely even for the version that's written in this movie rachel vice has nothing to do is her talents are very wasted and then like the labeouf who i'm glad we didn't talk that much about but at the same time that is such like a studio note character of just like he's a sidekick (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the kid wants to join in and then that stupid post-credit scene of him becoming oh an angel God. also was so bad with very cgi and shia labeouf coming out of the grave just like so dumb <laughs> so bad that's the thing is there's this push and pull between something really awesome and then something pretty fucking stupid that doesn't fit <laughs> with this movie mm-hmm. at all it's it's a real uneven bag but i would agree there's definitely far worse in terms of dc adaptations in terms of even like post-matrix kind of like action movies there's there's a lot worse that you can do i would agree mm-hmm. yeah i didn't even know about that post-credit sequence <laughs> yep yeah i have a oh, feeling i was fuck. like i feel like something really dumb is coming <laughs> yeah oh, it's just like God. keanu visits his grave just like i'm sorry buddy that you didn't make it and then he turns around and then all of a sudden cg angel comes up and he's just like well look at that oh no oh i know what i'm watching after this oh fucking hell oh yeah this movie sucks (laughs) well on that note um we're gonna go ahead and go into our next segment but first here's a brief message from the eso crew that we fully endorse welcome to dr geek's laboratory Dr. Geek here with another reminder that the ESO Network is pro-science and pro-vaccine. We urge you to be a superhero and protect yourself, your family, and your fellow geeks around the world. Don't be fooled by the forces of evil and their anti-science misinformation campaign. Consult the latest CDC guidelines, your doctor, and get the COVID vaccine today. So now it's time for The Double Redo, where basically uh, every week, along with uh, talking about these two movies related to the topic that we've chosen, um, Adam, myself, and a guest, um, if they so choose, uh, can participate in recommending some movies uh, based on the topic and uh, having you steer away from some uh, that we don't necessarily recommend. Um, So I'm going to start here uh, with my choices for Miss Tilda Swinton and her varied filmography. Um, for good, I have two here. Uh, one, uh, both of these actually were ones I hadn't seen until fairly recently. I have uh, one, her Oscar-winning movie, Michael Clayton, which, um, if you don't know, was basically mainly following the titular character played by George Clooney, who's like a fixer lawyer who has to keep coming in and like cleaning up messes that happen. And Tilda Swinton plays this woman who is one of the main CEO types of this company that produces uh, this 
um, weed killer that, as it turns out, has been giving people cancer. And so Michael was kind of put in to try and be a fixer to try and get the situation cleared up, along with Tom Wilkinson, who plays like one of the big heavy lawyers that's been around at the firm for several years and ends up having a huge nervous breakdown. And Michael Clayton Beast has to like carry him along with like all the other scenarios that are going on all around him. It's a tremendous movie. They got nominated for a bunch of Oscars and won, obviously, for Swinton, who is so interesting because she's playing like a literal Karen. Her character is named Karen, and also she looks so deceptively, like, normal as this, like, executive type, and it's such a, like, a role that lacks any kind of ego, much like a lot of her great performances, because she's introduced literally in a bathroom stall with, like, sweaty armpit stains coming out of her shirt. It is, like, completely lacking any kind of ego to, like, introduce her in that way, and then just show that, like, oh, despite how, like, frail she might seem, she is, like, a monstrous person as things go along with this movie. It's a movie full of great dialogue and great performances but Swinton I get why she won for this movie it's stellar and speaking of like sort of big ensemble pieces I'd also recommend A Bigger Splash which is from Luca Guadagnino who has worked with Swinton a couple times and uh, is the story of Swinton plays this David Bowie style rock star who at the start of the movie has ironically gone through surgery and cannot speak that much but she's often on holiday in Rome with her current lover and uh while they're over there they get a call from her former lover played by ray fines who's like hey i want to come over and surprise you guys and we'll hang out for the weekend with my daughter played by dakota johnson his estranged daughter who he didn't even know about until like a week ago and it's a tremendous sort of like psychological drama of just like swinton having to deal with her current lover who was introduced to her by ray fines and then also her former lover slash former manager played by ray fines where it's just like it's such a great like four character sort of like piece of just these great actors really playing off each other including i apologize i forgot the guy's name but his name's like matthias who plays her current lover who i've seen in other things is a really tremendous actor but it's a really stellar movie of just like these four people interacting with each other and all the awkward but fascinating back and forth between them and then also it's shot in rome and it looks fucking gorgeous and they're on this like holiday from hell that at the same time it's like damn they're this really cool villa I would love to be at. <laughs> it's it's a it's a very interesting, fascinating movie I'd recommend. Um, and then just quickly, my two bad ones that I wouldn't recommend so much are examples where Swinton is very good, but I don't think quite utilized that well in both the Terry Gilliam movie The Zero Theorem, which is one of his uh, more recent efforts that's sort of like attempting to be sci-fi satire in the same way of like 12 Monkeys or Brazil, but is such a bore. And particularly Swinton plays Christoph Waltz, who plays like the main guy's like digital therapist is the idea. It feels like one of many examples in that movie of just like a very half-baked satiric idea that has no weight to it whatsoever. And it kind of wastes Swinton in like a weird, almost like Dr. Seuss style look with her hair and everything else. It's it's a very messy, disappointing waste of her. And then the other one I have is The Statement, which is a movie I had never seen before but is uh, this movie from Norman Jewison, his last film before he retired, the guy who directed, like, In the Heat of the Night, and Jesus Christ Superstar, and Moonstruck, one of the great directors of, like, the 70s and 80s, um, doing this really bad, quiet drama about Michael Caine playing a French Nazi sympathizer, who, one, it's Michael Caine trying to, like, be a French guy, but just being Michael Caine, and it's really dull, and then she, he's being chased by the chief of police, played by Tilda Swinton, who spends most of her time just in boardrooms, kind of being like, is he here? No, that's where he'd want us to think he is. 
Maybe he's over in that area of France. And it's just, it is a snooze fest that I would not recommend. I've only seen one of your choices, uh, Zero Theorem. Can confirm. Boring as fuck. Like, I honestly (laughs) think it took me about three tries to get through the fucking thing. And it should be right up my alley. It's Terry Gilliam sci-fi. and Plus, you know, sci-fi period. And, ooh, that was a rough one. Uh, Michael Clayne, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, like, dying to see. I can't wait to watch it. Um, and then until like talking to you off mic, I had never even heard of your other two, but they both sound pretty fascinating. So have you seen any of those, Jessica? I have seen none of those. <laughs> shamefully. Like I said, I have not seen very many Tilda Swinton movies, which, you know, well done me for coming on a podcast about Tilda Swinton and being like, I've only seen one of her movies ever. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't seen any of those. I've, they're on my list to see, though. Obviously, I will adjust the um, urgency based on your recommendations. <laughs> true, true. But um, Adam, what about your choices? All right. So for my good choices, they're both in the horror genre. But um, for the first one, I have the remake of Suspiria that starred like Tilda Swinton, Dakota Johnson, a bunch of other people. Uh, Tilda Swinton plays dual roles in it, and uh, she's fucking fantastic in both performances it's kind of crazy um and i know it was kind of a maligned movie when it came out because it's it's very different from the original but it doesn't make it a bad movie i mean it's still a solid solid movie that stands on its own it looks great the score is fantastic the choreography is amazing the costuming is some of the best i've seen in a long time and again it's anchored by amazing amazing performances i'd argue it's the best uh at least my personal favorite dakota johnson performance and Tilda Swinton just shines in it a hundred per hundred percent. You get why people would be so like enamored to want to impress her and things like that. Like she's just wonderful in it. And then uh, my other one is um, the Jarmusch only lovers left alive um, with uh, Tilda Swinton, Tom Hiddleston, name it. They show up in this. There's quite a few big actors in this movie. Um, It's this really dark sort of punk rock vampire movie. And she and Tom Hiddleston are just oozing chemistry together in it. And she is wonderful in it. She is so fucking good. I I can't say enough about this movie. I I love the way it looks. I love the way it feels. I love how dirty and yet glamorous it all is. It's just a wonderful, wonderful vampire movie. Uh, And just a good character study alone. Uh, Even if you take out the, the fact that they're vampires, it's just would still be a really solid movie, but you'd have to do a lot more explaining with certain elements, but it, it's still a really, really good movie. And then for my bad, these were hard uh, only because she is good in pretty much everything. Um, but for one of them, I have the aforementioned uh, first Narnia movie that we talked about. And I don't put any of the blame on her at all. I just think that's one of those like fantasy epic movies that came out at the time and it was so well praised and loved and everyone thought it was awesome hell i even think i liked it when it came out and it is definitely also one of those that does not hold up at all the um for the majority of the cgi is abysmal looking it's just it's a rough movie and it's it it, i understand it's based on a book but it's way too long too but she is really good in it it's just it's a I, i just i can't stand the movie and then um my other one, which features an unrecognizable Tilda Swim, is the Amy Schumer train wreck. 
Now, I do think there's a lot of funny bits to this movie still. I, I, you know, some of it is problematic, but for the most part, it, it's still kind of funny. Um, it's also a little too long. Nothing to do with sort of the controversy about her as a stand-up comedian or anything like that. I just find Amy Schumer kind of a really unlikable lead. And even when she has her sort of switch moment, I, I just don't, I'm, I'm so kind of checked out on her character and I don't believe it. But still, Tilda Swinton, I wouldn't have known it was her unless I looked it up. She's so unrecognizable and really funny in it. Um, it's one of her major sort of comedic performances that I can think of. And she really goes for it and sells it 100%. An overlong Judd Apatow movie, Adam. How dare you? I know. Never. Well, especially off the back of funny people. Who would have ever thought he'd make a long, blown-out, winded movie? <laughs> um, I mean, I remember liking Trainwreck last time I saw it. I still think that movie's pretty fun. I like the idea that Schumer at least kind of, like, really dove into, like, hey, I'm going to make, basically, a Judd Apatow movie that, like, you all guys like because, like, there's a unlikable lead, but he's, like, a funny guy, and I'm going to do that putting myself in that particular stance. I think there's a lot of interesting elements to that movie. I don't know if it's my favorite. I would say, like, it's a thousand times better than, like, him doing an even worse version of that with, like, uh, King of Staten Island right after. That's a movie where it's just like, this, what the fuck even is this? <laughs> and it was with, like, Pete Davidson, I think, a much more annoying choice. I recently rewatched Narnia for this episode, honestly, because it's, like, it'd been years. And that's, like, the prime example of an, a weird, like, point where... Studios were trying so hard to be like, we did new Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. That was like one of the first attempts at doing that. And it, it's one of those series that like weirdly has three movies, but are, they're so like completely forgettable. Like that as a series, it just completely disappeared off the face of the earth I, with a lot of good reason. Even though Swinton's pretty fun. Even when like she randomly appears as like a ghost in the sequel, she's like, I'm still kind of here. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, and also some of the worst green screen that feels like it was this shot on like a fucking weather channel set and it's chroma keyed. <laughs> it looks so bad with some of like the bad background stuff. It's like horrific. Um, but I also really agree with like your two good choices though Suspiria I think is incredible I think even Tilda Swinton technically plays three roles in that movie by like the ending I, I won't quite spoil what necessarily happens but I think she, it's, she has three different yeah, sort of unrecognizable yeah. turns including the one where it's like she plays a male character and it's astonishing the only tell is just that like oh it's Tilda Swinton's voice you can so tell it's like this is a completely different register from like the old man incredible makeup that's there. But I, I think even it being so different from the original is its biggest strength. Like I don't get where like if, if it was too close, people would be damning it the same way. Like it's a damn if you do, damn if you don't thing. I vastly prefer just doing a completely different thing with the premise. Honestly, for any remake. Um and of course only lovers left alive. It's like him you know, Tilda Swinton and fucking Tom Hilson are vampires have lived forever and are like really fucking cool. It's perfect. <laughs> perfect casting. I, I think you're totally right about Suspiria. If they had done anything even trying to be like the original, it would have fallen flat like on its face. It would have been a total failure, I think, for everyone. Um, I, I will admit, as I'm a huge, huge fan of the original, the first time I watched the new Suspiria, I hated it. <laughs> um, but I realized I wasn't giving it a fair shake, so I rewatched it. I still don't love it, but I think it's very interesting. And I feel like it's something I have to keep watching to get the original out of my system. So I'm not comparing them at all, but I agree completely. You know, you understand why people are drawn to her even without witchcraft involved. Like this is a very charismatic 
person. The dance is amazing. The costumes are amazing. They're doing something so different from the original. I, I, I think that's the only way to go with remakes. And I, I really appreciate the ambition and the wisdom not to try to just recreate what Argento did. Um, so it's a, I feel like it's a good movie that I haven't made up my mind whether I like it or not, but I just need to keep revisiting it until I can completely exercise Argento from my system and just watch the 2018 Suspiria on its own merits. Yeah, because that original is always there. You can always revisit that original. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but I know uh, you have a few choices, Jessica, but I believe you only have one of each, correct? Yes, yeah. And I, I don't have a good and a bad. I have a good and a question mark, um, <laughs> which, uh, you know, I, I have yet to see a movie with Tilda Swinton in it that I think is bad, just one that I'm conflicted about, which I don't know if that uh, says anything about her in particular or just that I... I, I rarely see a movie that I say, oh, God, that was trash. I, I usually am like, well, I've got mixed feelings about it. Um, but my good example is Burn After Reading, um, written and directed by the Coen brothers. Um, it's a, a spy farce. A look at the, the CIA, an intelligence comedy with no intelligence, I think was the tagline, something like that, <laughs> um, where uh, Tilda Swinton plays the wife of... A CIA analyst played by John Malkovich, she's having an affair with George Clooney, um, who is a U.S. Marshal, and they get involved into this bizarre um, faux conspiracy with some gym employees played by Francis McDormand and Brad Pitt, and it is wildly hilarious to me. I know it's not the most well-received Coen Brothers movie. It's one that I really love. I think it's very funny and very smart, and I enjoy how um, bitter and cynical it is. Um, I think, you know, some of the reviews that kind of turn people off, but I'm like, well, why are you watching a Coen Brothers movie and you're surprised by misanthropy? I think it's smarter than a lot of people give it credit for. It's not the smartest movie ever made, but I think it's smarter than people give it credit for, and I think it's very very funny and i'm a big fan of um just really cynical farces i think there needs to be a bit more of that um in comedies a little bit more of that cynicism so i'm a big fan of this movie my question mark film is the dead don't die um another jim jarmusch uh movie um it's a zombie comedy basically it's this very laid-back small town where zombies start attacking obviously a lot of meta humor uh, an amazing cast uh tilda swinton plays a scottish funeral director who has a katana and goes around beheading zombies um and likes to do the makeup on the dead bodies at her funeral parlor in like really bold neon colors and that's basically it. I, uh, I, I do not know what I think of this movie. There were parts of it that I really loved, but I don't know if it came together for me in the end. So I'm, I'm not prepared at all to call it bad. So I'm just going to put question mark. Uh, have you, have either of you seen it? Tell me if I'm totally off base and this belongs in the good column, and I just don't appreciate fine cinema. Um, I've seen it, and I mean, I liked it. I would say I have similar sort of frustrating mixed things. I think 
the stuff with like Adam Driver and Bill Murray as like the two town cops, I think is incredible. Mm -hmm. I think that's like, there's so much fun, like dry delivery, particularly from Adam Driver. I think it's stellar, but Mm -hmm. I agree that like a lot of the other stuff, it does feel kind of aimless in a way that doesn't quite work as well as like Jarmusch can do aimless. And that's what works about like an only lovers left alive. Or we've talked about ghost dog on this show where like there's a laid back sensibility, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, I think it's because there's so many different characters and just disparate points that just doesn't quite come together. I, I agree. I can see why. Like, it was very divisive when it came out. I totally get why mm-hmm. it was. It's, I have conflicting feelings about a movie where, like, Iggy Pop plays a fucking zombie. This should be my favorite right. fucking movie ever, and it's not quite <laughs> at the same exactly. time. I get the question mark angle of it uh, completely. Yeah. Yeah, Iggy Pop is a zombie. Tilda Swinton is a Scottish punk funeral director with a sword. This right. should be the greatest movie ever made. And yet... <laughs> I I just wasn't interested, and it's not that I don't like Jarmusch's speed because you know Ghost Dog, fucking incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just for this particular movie, it just didn't come together for me. I haven't seen it yet. I, I've been meaning to. It's just kind of one of those that I've heard such um, mixed things on that I've never really sought it out. So I mean, you know, it's the, if I can't find anything else i'll put it on i mean i gotta see it i think i think i've seen everything jarmusch has done and plus the cast is just so insane mm-hmm. um so i'm curious if it if i personally don't think it works what the fuck happened like you know what i mean <laughs> uh but uh, we've talked about burn after reading uh in this exact segment we're both at least you know i think i could speak for thomas when i say that we're both big fans of that movie and mm-hmm. and think it's probably the most underrated of the Coen Brothers films. Yes, yeah. How dare you put my own words in my mouth? How <laughs> dare you? Um, but no, I yeah, we've talked, I think you recommended like a few episodes ago for when we did 2008, uh, Adam, as one of your redo choices, right? I am completely on board with that, yeah. I think especially, like, Swin is so perfectly foul-mouthed in that movie, <laughs> and how she puts down both Clooney and... John Malkovich is so funny, especially Malkovich with his huge ego. <laughs> Every time she just cuts him to the quick and he's just like, oh, I can't handle this. I'm so frustrated with this. It's really fun to see. I think I agree. In a movie with plenty of scene-stealer performances, she also really sticks out, especially as, like, the one who's, like, the most calm and collected person. <laughs> she's, like, the only person who's, like, a complete fuck-up in that movie, I think. <laughs> and she she's a great sort of, like, straight person to lead off, but also just very funny. And hey, just to repeat everybody's options here that we chose for the double redo, my two good choices were Michael Clayton and A Bigger Splash. My two bads were The Zero Theorem and The Statement. Then Adam's two good choices were Suspiria, the remake, and Only Lovers Left Alive. And then his bad choices were Trainwreck and The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then Jessica's choices were her good, Burn After Reading, and then her bad or question mark, as she said, the dead don't die. Uh, but yeah, so those are our choices. Uh, we definitely recommend you all submit your own uh, to us. Uh, you can do that over on our email and social media that we'll reference here in a bit. But uh, first, we want to thank some people, like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to uh, Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Follow him at Night of Water. That's Night with a K. 
underscore of underscore water for all his great stuff. You can find his link tree if you follow him on Twitter over there. And also thanks to our Patreon subscribers. As we mentioned, uh, you all patrons, edgelord patrons as we call you, uh, voted for this particular episode topic. You get to vote on stuff like that or individual movies we cover. And also listen to bonus podcasts that we record. And it's all for just $1 a month to help us keep the lights on. And this week that we're going to put this out, there'll be another poll for you to pick the director we do for October. We love doing horror-themed stuff. And so you all get to pick between two horror directors uh, that we could potentially do a topic on. Either Wes Craven, creator of Scream and Nightmare on Elm Street. Or David Lynch, the guy behind, uh, you know, like Mulholland Drive and... Blue Velvet, both interesting directors. I know, Jessica, you're a pretty big horror fan. Where would you lie? Which which one do you slightly prefer, if any? Honestly, I would vote for Lynch. I, I you know, no disrespect to Wes Craven because I love Wes Craven, but between the two of them, I would vote for Lynch, personally speaking. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing is the Lynch would be, I think, a very fascinating episode to do. But I will also say Craven also works for our show because... He has such a fascinatingly mixed filmography where you have like Scream and Nightmare on Elm Street, but also like Deadly Friend and some of these other ones that are just like bizarrely bad in a fascinating way. You make an excellent point, actually. (laughs) It might be easier to talk about Wes Craven, perhaps. That's true, because at the same time, Lynch has a couple of ones I might consider bad. Uh, But at the same time, either one would be very fascinating to devote an episode to. I'm very curious where you all will lie. On that, but uh, we also want to thank someone very special, our guest, Jessica. Thank you for coming on the show. Please plug yourself. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on Twitter at We Who Walk Here. I share my writing and uh, you know, all my silly horror and other movie thoughts. Um, but yeah, come say hi to me at We Who Walk Here. Talk to me about Tilda Swinton's fashion sense. Um, and thank you so very much for having me on the show. Oh, anytime, anytime. And like I said earlier, great cosplays, particularly you reposted the Elvira one. That was a lot of fun. You have all sorts of <laughs> interesting you. ones. Um, and uh, yeah, of course, um, over at uh, film-cred.com. Um, I'm also, I've been working with you over there and you've been a great content editor, especially in the most recent months when you've really gotten to, to play that part. You're a very receptive and a respectful writer that I like working with quite a bit. Oh, thank you so much. But uh, you can find us and our Rinky Dink operation on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod, uh, where we, you know, just share all sorts of stuff about any particular episode we do. And also submit feedback to us, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. Um, if you uh, can't help us with the Patreon, that's fine. We recommend you at least help us out by uh, buying some merchandise with our logo on it over at the ESOT Public Store. You can buy, like, a t-shirt or a mug laptop case all sorts of stuff that helps us out we get a bit of a uh, kickback from that so it'd be really helpful if they did what adam buy our merch buy <laughs> our merch <laughs> perfect works perfect every time we force them to do that every week so enjoyable uh never gets old. never gets old never gets on his nerves in particular but uh <laughs> for more of uh, my own individual antics you can find me on twitter instagram and letterboxes out and at the who's tommy um and i also do some writing at both uh, my personal blog marianithomas.wordpress.com and the previously mentioned film-cred.com and you can find me on instagram or twitter at atom underscore or underscore Adam. That's A-T-O-M underscore O-R underscore A-D-A-M. And you can also find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S-C-H-W-A-N-D-T-S-O-N. 
I will not explain what that name means. <laughs> Leave it a mystery. That's how it works. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it would really help out also if you uh, like the show to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on ESO, why not listen to all the other great shows on the network? Um, you can also dig into our archives on our Podbean main feed for even a bunch of episodes we did before we joined ESO. And nothing else if you can't. Support us on the Patreon if you can't buy the merchandise. The absolutely free way to help us out is to rate, review, or share the show around. That gets us more visibility. I don't understand why we got to keep having this conversation with you fucking <laughs> It is the easiest thing to do. You hit a fucking button, and you do it. It's like pretend you're having one of your microwave burritos or whatever the fuck. Just hit the button and share it. It's not hard. I'm. You know what? I'm, the, I, I'm, I'm done. I'm over it. You sound like you are. You sound like completely <laughs> over it on every level. It really helps to yell at the audience to get them to do something. Apparently. It's the only way they listen. That, that's yeah, true. Apparently we have to. The lack of shares shows that. <laughs> oh, well, Adam, it's time we did uh, what we do at the end of every episode, which is pick our choices for next week. Um, this is something we always do where Adam and I each have uh, either two good or two bad choices. We switch off on the quality every week uh, for next week's episode. We've assigned them between one and ten for each of our choices. So Adam's two choices he's done that for. Uh, he has the two bad for this topic. I've done the same for my two good. And uh, usually either us or the guest, if we have a guest, uh, picks them between one and ten, and whatever whichever of the choices we have that gets closest to ends up being our pick. Though keep in mind, we also do have something called the Godfather Rule. We're in our back pockets. Adam and I each have a veto where we can hear either a good or bad choice and then say, actually, I'll take the cannoli uh, for this particular choice. So we will... Completely strike that one from the record. We have to go with whatever other choice is there. We can only do that once from now until our anniversary in May. So it's in our back pocket, as it were. So uh, the topic, by the way, that we're doing um, is interesting. We are doing a bit early because in October we like doing horror stuff. But as of this recording, a James Bond movie may or may not be coming out <laughs> on October 8th. <laughs> we're still kind of up in the air. But either way, we're doing... Um, a James Bond episode, one that because of the pandemic has been in limbo for several, several months. Uh, but we're finally doing that. And we're finally going to do a James Bond episode, whether or not No Time to Die comes out a couple weeks after that. Yeah, we can't keep changing the fucking, you know, <laughs> schedule around, for God's sakes. No, for you. are you a Bond fan at all? Jessica? I am, yes. So I'm, I'm excited about this one. <laughs> All right. Well, you get to do the picking uh, for our choices. Uh, so please pick a number between one and ten for my two good ones. Well, it's James Bond. I'll go with seven. Of course. Very astute. I, number seven. I have a choice here that I think got maligned a lot at the time, but I think has a lot of fans now. Uh, I think mainly because uh, this is the only one-and-done Bond uh, for Mr. George Lazenby, I have On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Man, it's been forever since I've seen that. I, I've seen the George Lazenby documentary recently, but I haven't seen that movie in forever. But I remember being quite, uh, you know, sort of positive on it. So I am not taking the cannoli. Okay. Are you a fan of that one in particular, Jessica? That is one of the few I have not seen, so I'll have to watch it to prepare for the episode. <laughs> Interesting, yes. Though on the other side of things, over at number two, I had another one of the first of two times Martin Campbell uh, kind of rebooted the franchise in a very effective way. I have 1995's Golden Eye, the first Pierce Brosnan one. Yeah, baby. 
one of the best Bond themes, too. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. a stellar one. But now, Jessica, for Adam's two bad choices, a number between one and ten. Four. Okie dokie. At number three, I have the final appearance of which some people still think is the greatest act, uh, Bond that there's been on screen. I have the early 1980s Never Say Never Again. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The the first, well, the second time that Connor was like, well, actually, it's technically the third time Connor was like, nope, I quit. (laughs) It's just like the third time's the charm, I guess, because he finally quit after that. Um, That's a really bad one. Um, Hmm. I'm very tempted because that's, ugh. I I don't even like Thunderball, which is a remake of that much. Um, But you know what? I'm not going to take the cannoli. I think it's a solid choice for that, the bads on that. Would you maybe agree with that, Jessica? Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with that, yeah. (laughs) Yes, yes. But what was your other choice, Adam? The other one at number nine is the infamous, uh, potentially the worst one of this Bond, the Roger Moore Moonraker. Oof. Another bad one. Yeah, I was going the, yeah, those, those are those are both bottom of the barrel. I'm I'm curious, uh, but but yeah. So uh, that'll be interesting. Uh, we'll be talking about Never Say Never Again and Honor Magic Secret Service, uh, two of the longer titles for a Bond movie, <laughs> for sure. But on that note, everybody, um, it's time that we ended the show. And please, as we said previously, eat kosher hot dogs. Yeah, get like a you know grass fed beef, you know organic stuff. If you're gonna if you're gonna eat meat, get the good stuff. Fucking killing Oakjas. Don't 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 kill our beautiful super pigs. Please don't. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.